This is Accessing the Pipeline, a podcast for Black professionals in private equity and finance, brought to you by McGuire Woods. Join host Ruben Pouchet III as he welcomes special guests offering insights into accessing capital, deal-making, accelerating portfolio optimization, and developing relationships among Black professionals in the private equity industry. Tune in to access the possibilities. Welcome back to Accessing the Pipeline. This is part two of our episode featuring Bruce Hampton and Jessica Patton from Fifth Century Partners. Switching gears just a little bit, you know, we, as Greg mentioned, we're focused, and as you all well know from coming to our events, and we're focused on building this ecosystem of Black professionals in private equity. And sort of as like a sub part of that, we're focused on building communities of, of, of Black-led emerging managers, um, across the country, we be in Dallas next month at the Emerging Manager Conference, which I hope you guys will be. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll do something there. And we're obviously focused on doing that here in Chicago. But we really want to, you know, sort of drill down on some of the pain points of, of, of being Black emerging managers at this time in this space, right? I mean, some, some could argue that this is probably the perfect time, given what transpired during the COVID pandemic from a social unrest standpoint from a social justice standpoint in America. But then, you know, you know, we're a year sort of removed from what I consider as like the heart of COVID and and things are a little bit different. Some of those things aren't talked about as much and the economy's in a completely different space. Credit is expensive, all these things. And and so just really want to kind of drill down on some of the themes that you all sort of saw develop when you were out on the road, meeting with LPs. And, and really sort of, you know, just just rousing in the moment, like, here I am, this young Black person <laughs> doing what we traditionally don't see Blacks doing in this space, which is we're all fundraising. We are out. We're the people. We're the face of this business. I just want to see, like, you know, not, and this is not, obviously, we don't, we're, not, we're not out to, 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 to make anybody look bad, but I think that you could probably look back on that experience and say, these are some of the things that we noticed either about ourselves or about the people we encountered that allow us to go back to the table and say, okay, we should do this differently, or we should really not sort of shy away from this aspect of what it is that we're doing and trying to build as we go out and try to raise money. I can start and I'll have Bruce end, but I think that we've always been authentic to like who we are. Um, I think we're very rooted like as people, as professionals, and just like why we started the firm, like what we bring to the table and just how we came together and just telling our stories. So I think we've been pretty unwavering um, to that. And I, I think this is agnostic of like who you are, what you look like, what your strategy is. You just you're not always that thing for that person. And and that's OK. And I think we get on calls and realize this isn't resonating. And we would go through iterations of asking questions. Was it the way that we told the story or was it just there just wasn't chemistry or, or resonance? And, you know, you work on iterating so you can better answer questions. Uh, we weren't we've. The first meetings we took were sorry to the people that we met. We were probably explaining and showing decks that were not the most like professional for sure. It was our first time doing the thing. But as we as you go along, you iterate, you become stronger at telling the story and, you know, connecting the dots and demonstrating um, to people the, the fulsome part of your strategy. And then asking the questions after, did we, you know, answer all the questions to the best of our ability? Did we, you know, were we true to our strategy? And then you just say hey, this, you know, just didn't resonate and that's okay. And I think that that's totally fine, just like with anything in, in life. Um, so I would start out by um, just really emphasizing 
that. Um, we talked about kind of the track record. Uh, we talked about the gatekeeping pieces, which I think are really important. I won't reemphasize those, but there are ways of doing things that are uh, pretty traditional in the LP world, which evolve around um, taking and tying track records, taking and tying, have people work together before that can combat some of the initiatives to bring in diversity to an emerging manager sphere. And I, it's one of those things that's kind of a struggle. It's a chicken and egg thing because you understand that this is the way that the thing has been done and this is the way that have created successful portfolios before. So it's kind of hard for LPs to get off of that. And it's also if you're serving up to a higher boss and you have to explain why you're taking a differentiated risk on something and underwriting in a different way, that becomes a difficulty. So what people tend to rely on and go back to is um, they say they want to back emerging managers and, and at times diverse managers, but then that becomes a circular issue with the traditional ways that they've connoted success, which becomes part of the problem. And so that's one thing that I think underlies the kind of emerging manager space and needs a lot of work on ways that people do due diligence on emerging managers and diverse emerging managers. I think holistically, there just needs to be a different traded way of doing it. Second thing I will say that we're maybe so, more so stepping into now and thinking a lot more about now is how does a diverse emerging manager pool of capital relate to growing up? So there are a number of diverse emerging manager pools that focus on, call it funds one through three, uh, smaller size checks, sometimes one to two million or may maybe max 10. But as you get larger and that proportion of capital becomes smaller in what you raise, how does it continue to grow or how can people continue to grow the strategies and also create a bridge to if you're a fund of funds, if you're an endowment, how does, or even a, a corporate, um, how does that money or that pool of capital grow into the traditional pool of capital? And I don't think those bridges have been created yet, which causes, causes tension in the system because, again, the idea is to create um, and bring up more diverse emerging managers. And we're talking about, you know, particularly um, uh, black and brown and, and probably even, even from a gender perspective, women managers. But there's a lot of things that can be unintentional blockers or haven't been fully thought out in strategies. Yeah, if, if you don't mind me, you know, well, I'll underscore some of those points. So one thing that we try to be, and we don't have it all figured out, there's mistakes or there's you know, things where we've had to make concessions, but it goes back really to me around this whole like values alignment and there's values alignment amongst our team, but we want to have some level, some level of alignment with our LP. So, so some of the issues Jessica's talked about where for lack of a better term, you know, you don't want to get put in a box, right? Because then fundamentally, you know, it, it may stunt your growth long-term because you, you, you were an initiative at the time where I'm just, you know, being frank here, you know, different company organization says, hey, we want to, we're you know, all of a sudden excited about the back in this, this, this community and here's a pool of capital and then all the, and then, okay, you rise to the top as a person. But then the question is, well, what happens when you fast forward now we're in 2023 and like there's other challenges, is it going to have that same level of support or not? So I think what we tried to do is be very thoughtful and intentional about understanding where we fit with certain LPs and if there was so going to be support outside the parameters of an initiative or something that could, you know, be here today, gone tomorrow. So I think that that's really important. And when you're now, it's a hard thing because as a first time fund in many ways, 
Like, you know, you're just trying to raise money, right? And it's like, where does it come from? But I think you have to have those honest conversations with yourself and a team first, but then with, with certain LPs that, you know, you're seeing how they're showing up and you've got to ask the next order of question and say, hey, like, you know, as we grow and scale, how does, how do, how are you able to support that growth, right? Are we able to, maybe we, maybe we have to start in this because of just, you know, how their, you know, kind of underwriting process works, but there's a path to graduating to a certain size parameter where we can be amongst, call it, the bigger pools of capital. That's, that's the important piece is not getting put in, into a box at all. And then we've been, I'm going to be a long-winded, but we've done that, I would think, with our LPs, but even on the strategy, when you asked me about that, we're very intentional about not boxing ourselves from opportunities. Like we support all types of people and stuff and want to find good deals, but we don't want to just be, because we, we've had to deal with this a little bit in the marketplace, but talk to an investment banker and he's like, great, love it. Sounds great. All right. When I find a black and brown business, I'll throw it your way. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa time out. <laughs> like right, right. that, that's not the, what this is here. I want to see, I want to see your best PPM healthcare business that you're going to send or whatever that fit, you know, the, that's what we're looking. We're looking for that same thing too. And let us figure out, let us figure out the diversity. And that's not your job. Your job is to, is to find qualified buyers that have the capital to experience to help these companies grow. Let me figure out if, if I have a unique angle because of sourcing or because of the human capital or whatever. That's for me. That's not your job. So, I, again, this theme of, like, don't get yourself in a box, yeah. I think is really critical to long-term success. That, those are, that's great. Um, I, think, I think people need to hear that. People need to know that it's not just, even when they think about this initiative, that it's not just to support minority-owned or black all businesses, you know, sort of at, at the, at the ground level. Uh, we hope that that's an, un, you know, not an unintended, but we, we hope that that's one of the things that does happen from this. But at the same time, we're in the private equity business and we, we want the, we want to work on the best and, and, right. and biggest deals. We want to work on the deals that make sense. And it's just added value for us to be able to do it with people that look like us, that share our values, much like what you all talked about. One thing I'm curious about, you, you alluded to this a little bit, is that there's this system and the system doesn't necessarily jive with the with what people's you know sort of lip service is to to these particular initiatives. And I don't think it's lip service, by the way. I think it's I think it's authentic. I think there's a lot of interest, but the the systems haven't been broken down to meet the true authentic interest in in breaking barriers because it's actually really hard. Right. So continue. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh great. I'm glad you cleaned that up for me. Um, <laughs> what are some of the unique ways that you've been able to mitigate? the sort of gaps between this, this, this new commitment to impact and D and I and some of these other things and, and the slower evolution of the systems to better support, right? Those initiatives and those, those desires to, to sort of look at not only emerging managers, but also diverse emerging, emerging managers as viable, successful, good investments. But I think about, you know, just if, if we look at what our counterparts, what, what our non-black and brown counterparts leave their fund with the Rolodex that's, you know, this big, did, what, what, did you guys have some of those similar challenges where it's like, you're looking at your Rolodex and maybe it's, it's full of people that look, that sort of come from a similar community or look like you, it, it, did you have to sort of rebuild the Rolodex or, or was it kind of the opposite where you had the same Rolodex, but you know, you're, you're, you're calling on people. And, and again, they, they just don't have all the systems in place to really sort of say, okay, Hey, look, we've got this group. They came from a great, they all have the right, the right mm -hmm. background for us to invest in. 
but I'm not sure how I sell it. Is it was was that was it more the latter or the former? It's going to be something in the middle, which is I say that um, maybe there's two ways to address this, and the way we addressed it, and I think there's a way that I'm trying to address that we're trying to address it now. The way that we addressed it in our fundraising was by, and and this wasn't we didn't intentionally set this up, but now I tell people that you should try to intentionally create this. But you should have a person that can help you talk to the gatekeepers. And that's not you. You're selling a product, your, your strategy, and your fund. But you need someone that has um, professional resonance that knows some of the gatekeepers that can call and say, I'm invested in this fund, and I think this is why you should uh, invest as well. And, and it, it has to be strategically done. It has to be after there's already some interest. Um, it's at, kind of at the right time. And I couldn't, you know, there's like tactically ways of doing it. It's not like, oh, the, I had one meeting with this person. Now try to go um, get to the gatekeeper. But as we would get toward investment committee, we'd have particular kind of maybe I call it two to three people who were those kind of calls into the gatekeeper to say, hey, um, this is 5CP. Wanted to give you a little bit of information. I realized they're in your, your pipeline. Wanted to give you some context on who the professionals are, why I've backed them and you know, where, get a sense of where they are in your process and understand what type of, you know, risk you see or, you know, what might stop you. Because I can probably provide a lot of context about ways to mitigate that. And that was really transformative. And again, you don't know the opposite of if I didn't do that, what would have happened? Or you, you can't, I can't play back to you truly how it had an effect. But I do think it was a differentiated way to um, go out and reduce some of that bias without having the perfect team track record that was aligned that we, you know, rolled out of a traditional firm um, type of thing. And I've seen it be successful with other folks that have uh, done fundraising is just by having that advocate. Because effectively, when you get to the highest levels, people are saying, should I invest, invest in XYZ named traditional fund, fund 15, you know, or should I uh, put more risky capital to work and invest in 5CP fund one, and you need someone to help to. And I think that, by by the way, research proves that 5CP or whatever the emerging manager fund one is a better investment to make because first funds tend to just do better. Like there's many, much research that connotes that, but it's a safer bet to invest in brand name fund 15, 20, because if that fund doesn't return you as a an LP isn't going to necessarily get in trouble. Like, oh, well, that one just did where it goes. Okay. Because um, that's just the way that the that things work. The second point I was making is trying to have conversations now with a couple of LPs who are trying to think about how they do due diligence on emerging managers, especially diverse emerging managers, and change a little bit about what is it that we're asking for uh, through our due diligence period? How can we change up the system to best meet our long-term interests? Hey, just one piece to underscore there is just this whole perception of like, it's like perceived risk, right? Because there's this thing of like, put aside whether you're diverse uh, fund or not, but emerging manager, oh, well, like, if I pick this person that I might lose my job versus if I pick, you know, this per this firm has been in for 20 years, like, if it doesn't go well, no one's going to say, well, oh, you picked the, you know, right. But I actually think there a lot of data supports, um, you know, earlier stage funds outperforming kind of the the guys that have been there for a long time. So it really comes down to you've got to have advocates, just like in any point of your career, right? Well, on a personal level, you've got to have multiple people that can go to bat for you, that can add additional data. I mean, by no means are we, you know, we want to go through the process. We want you to 
peek and poke and all that type of stuff. No one's saying that we're trying to circumvent, but it's also helpful when you've gone through that. And then in some of those key issues come up when you've got other people that can advocate and say, hey, but, you know, I hear you, but this is an outstanding group of people. This is what they've done in other capacities and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's another reason. So I, I think you've got to, you've got to figure that out with who those advocates are, what connectivity. I mean, the other thing I'll add to that is just even sometimes whether or not the person can advocate, it's also just get information. Like if you don't, you got to understand what people's process look like, right? It's not, it's so everybody's process is not the same. And just even understanding like what they care about, what they don't care about, like how much time should you spend doing this or that? Just those nuggets of information put you in a position to be more successful than if you didn't have that, you know, that level of intel. Jessica, you talked about this a little bit earlier, and, and I've, I've heard you say this, we, we talked about this at dinner, is that you want to see other diverse managers in the space. What are some of the things that you all think as a part of this ecosystem can be doing to support other diverse managers? Like it doesn't just have to be you all at the top there's enough room at the table for everybody. So what are some things we can do to sort of support that mantra? Great question. Um, I think continue having real conversations, continue to invite uh, a variety of different folks because people will have different insights and see different parts of the market in ways that they um, were successful. I'd say probably related to our LP conversation, bringing more LPs to the table to assess like how they're thinking about things. And there's a variety of different managers or LPs that are thinking about a diverse emerging managers that are thinking about the emerging manager pool holistically and are balancing out the reality of um, different things, especially if they have exposure to both public and private markets. And so I think the more insights that you can bring from LPs to push to GPs to actually um, try to tap into some of the, you know, real thing dynamics uh, within different types of LPs as well, because we have a wide demographic of LPs, just like you have a wide demographic of GPs who are investing in different things. I think that could be really insightful. Yeah. Where's my, how about those? Honestly, I mean, I think you guys are, what you guys are doing it, is the right things, right? I think one is just the the pure visibility, right? You can't see, if you can't see something, it's hard to envision yourself doing it. So the more you can create a platform where other, where people can see and hear from other people that were of similar age, similar background, et cetera, et cetera, I think that instills more confidence and okay, like you know, if that person can do it or they had these same set of obstacles and were able to overcome them, then that gives them the confidence to do it. Uh, I think as Jessica said, um, again, leveraging your, platforms and bring together the different stakeholder groups, right? It's the, you know, it's potential GPs, it's LPs, um, you know, there's, you know, other other folks as part of that. Um, so I would just say, just continuing to, to forward those efforts and have real conversations. I mean, a lot of folks, what we've learned, you know, people will talk high level about, about some of these things and give you like high level advice, which is, which is helpful. I think it's the real, when you get down two or three levels deep, when people really tell you like, okay, this is what they really need to be prepared for, or, you know, this is how you really need to show up. That's the stuff that really, I think, allows you to have success. Awesome. Well, you know, we've, uh, we're two or three episodes in on our podcast and tend to like to end them on a fun note, but in a way in which we can enrich the audience experience, we can give them some some, some things about so they know you better, but also some tools that they can walk away uh, with the, to, to enhance themselves as a professional. So I had a couple of sort of round robin questions. We'll fire away. You guys can decide and take some first. 
uh, and we'll just we'll just rip through them real quick. So what's what's one book that you recommend that's been transformational for your career? I would say Unapolo- Unapologetically Ambitious by Shelley Harshenbow, which is a book really about in the canon of the lean in, but also black professionals. Uh, Shelley is a woman that led a company called Metric and is the CEO of that company, Metric Stream. And she's just really thoughtful about what it takes to to be successful and, and balance both professional and personal as a mother, wife, um, and just the work that it took to, to get there. I think it's really strong. How about you, Bruce? Yeah, there's a book, and I'm blanking on the author, but read both of them, Essentialism and Effortless. It's really a leadership-oriented book, but the first around essentialism is really to cut to the chase, it's more just about like, how do you prioritize, right? And I think in this world where there's a lot of personal and professional pools on your time, you feel like you can get caught up in a tailspin of a lot of stuff. But if you go through a bit of a process to figure out like what for that day or that week or that month, whatever time period just matters the most and it's like absolutely critical, I think you're able to actually make a lot more progress across even things that are not core to, you know, it's just, so it's that level of intentional just around your time and stuff that I found really helpful, especially as being, you know, a relatively new parent and having a company and all these things. Um, so yeah, those are a couple of that. Let me, let me take this one. I'm a, I'm a bourbon guy. <laughs> what cocktail best describes your personality? Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, I'll just speak on what I've been drinking. <laughs> that works. So historically, I haven't been much into tequila, but I've gotten into it lately, in particular Mezcal. But then to your point on bourbon, uh, I was always drink a lot of old fashions, just very easy to drink, kind of chill drink, you know. So now I'll just merge the two. So I do Mezcal, <laughs> a little bit. Mezcal old fashions, which I think probably speaks to like, you know, I'm kind of a chill, laid back guy, Okay, have good conversation, but you know, there's these flashes of, you know, a little more substance there sometimes where I, you know, I can have a little bit of fun or, you know, kind of get out of my comfort zone. So I think that's probably probably best describes me as cool. My drink is uh, gonna be French 75. Over the uh, pandemic really got into gin, a very random thing. I think a lot of people have uh, exposures in college. This isn't a drink for me, but came back to it through a much more sophisticated a palette, but the uh, balance, I feel like gin has a herbaceous, it's like a good balance. It's just like a, or both like easy, it's like kind of an easygoing, can be an easygoing drink, but also has a little spark in it, but also I think I have a bubbly, warm personality. Um, and I think the, the kind of mix of everything in the French 75 is, is well balanced, it turns out, but it has all these components that are uh, complex that I feel like really reflect the person that I am. Awesome. Excellent. All right. So this is this one's a bit taboo, but I'm always curious to hear everyone's response to it. But if you could have dinner with one person dead or alive, who would it be? My person's Oprah. And this is also I feel like this is something that a lot of people would say. But um, the reason why I really want to meet Oprah is because of her ability to really get to who people are and get to their core and relatively quickly, quickly. And I think that this type of um, skill as I've kind of talked about connectivity with people and building networks is just one of the most important things that you can that you can do. And um, she does it on a variety of topics with a variety of different people and is able to distill seem like complex um, people into um, understanding what are their motivations and who they truly are. And I think that that's like one of the skill sets that I most value. 
roofs. All right. So I think the investor in me is going to say maybe Reginald Lewis, uh, you know, I've read, read his book and think about when era in which, you know, sort of he was coming up and, and trying to, you know, make change and, and do some things for himself and private equity. I just, I would just love to hear, like we were just talking about just all the hurdle cool hurdles along the way, all the obstacles, all the different things. So just to be able to get like some of those insights, um, cause we all know the like success side of it, but a lot of times you don't get to see the other side of the hand. So I love to just hear a little bit more into that, that could also be helpful for us, right? As we think about growing and scaling and having some of a differentiated strategy just to be better prepared for, you know, for those obstacles as they come. Want to take this last one? Sure. Single best piece of advice you re- received from a mentor, personally or professionally? I re- received a lot of good advice and I think it's all, you know, specific to um, points in time, but something that really resonates that a lot of people have probably told me in a variety of different ways. So it wasn't like a nugget of time or whatever, but it's like kind of you're in the driver's seat. So if you decide uh, something different or want to do something different, a, a lot of what I think people forget is like you, you are generally in control of your life. So if you want to go off and do something very different, or if you want to make a change, if like, I want to talk to Bruce about changing the investment strategy of a particular idea, like I'm the person that can help like facilitate that. And I think a lot of what we go on, or for me, I'll speak to myself but most very distinctly, is like a lot of my journey has been about trying to continue to come to conclusions of that. It's like, if I want to make a change, like how do I seed that change? How do I get to where I want to be? How do I create that environment, whether it's like finding more mentors in the right networks, finding great people that I want to work with, building great teams, is that I have the ability to to catalyze that. I just have to remember like I can I can control the temperature kind of yeah. in, in the car. And but it's hard. It sounds so simple. But um yeah, something that that I hearken back to a lot. No, that's a good one. I, I think I have some pretty simple, maybe it goes back to like my my prior athlete days and this notion of like almost like every day is an opportunity, but like each day you, you you either get better, you get worse, you don't really stay the same. So it's really up to you to figure out like, what are you going to do today? And I think it's very easy sometimes to get caught into this, you know, I don't know, routine and pattern or, you know, fall victim to the circumstance or whatever. But you really like, I back when I was playing sports, I literally used to have that written in my locker. So every day I went out to practice, I'd be like, okay, like, you got to face this when you get back in here and ask yourself, did I get better today or I got worse, right? I either got better or worse. And I think to having that mentality each day and pushing yourself to say, okay, like irrespective of the context or circumstances, the barriers or whatever, did I get better? And it could be something small, right? It could be a challenge to yourself of like, wow, I need to, I want to get better at networking today. Let me reach out to two people that I, you know, from my past that I probably, you know, just haven't connected with. So you just got to find whatever that is. And I'm a big believer in like these incremental gains is what leads to long-term success. So if you can just take that approach each day, you may look up at the end of the year like, wow, like I've actually come a long way because I, you know, kind of incremented my way to whatever objective I'm trying to achieve. Both awesome pieces of advice. I'm over here. I'm taking notes. <laughs> uh, we, we wanted to, you know, McGuire Woods, myself, Greg, want to just thank you all for making time. You know, you're very busy, so we appreciate you being a guest on the podcast. And uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation and helping uh, helping each other contribute to this ecosystem and our own personal and professional goals. So thank you thank again you. for being on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Look forward to, uh, actually, you know, actually doing together, doing some work together and, uh, you know, just keeping the ecosystem strong. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Accessing the Pipeline. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Ruben Poucher III at rpusha at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action. 